Hi, everybody. It's Richard Zwicky with High on Healthy. And joining us today, we have Justin Townsend, who's the CEO of Michael Meditations. Welcome aboard High on Healthy there, Justin. Hi, Richard, and thank you for having me on your show. So Michael Meditations uh, is based in Jamaica, and uh, but you've come to the space in the industry from really a broad array of business industries, um, driving innovation, but now looking at personal growth and alternatives to traditional healing therapies to combat anxiety and depression, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I've, I've got a 25-year corporate career behind me. Um, but in parallel to that, I mean, I had my first experience with mushrooms in my late teens, uh, scared myself a few times, uh, developed a meditation practice, uh, developed a deep interest in, in you know, like psychology and the human condition, both collectively and individually, beginning with myself first. Um, I had my first ayahuasca experience in the year 2000, ayahuasca being uh, a psychedelic that comes out of uh, South America. Uh, I then went on to help facilitate ayahuasca ceremonies as part of the European underground psychedelic movement. Um, so these are two very separate disparate paths and they converged in 2017 when I initially joined Market Meditations as an advisor and then went on to become CEO and no longer Right. And so you're originally from the UK? That's correct. Yeah. I then I spent about 10 years, 11 years living in Germany, another 10 to 11 years in the US, in New York, and then moved over here from New York uh, in 2000, late 2018, 2019. Right. And now based out of Jamaica, where Michael Meditations runs all of its um, ceremonies and practices. And retreats. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, one thing that I'm careful about as we discuss this is we, for example, are a Western contemporary therapeutic model. There are other options for more exotic shamanic type retreats that encompass ritual and ceremony. That's not part of our vocabulary. It's very much um, a, a Western contemporary therapeutic model. So whilst we have a lot of structure to what we do, uh, we're, we're, we are careful to avoid words like ceremony and ritual. As a matter of fact, many of our guests tell us that they come to us because we're a Western contemporary therapeutic model and the concept of a shamanic model is scary to them. So, yeah. Yeah, and you know, that that actually, that makes sense because for a lot of people, that's a question mark. And if they don't understand what it really means, that creates a barrier to entry, which, you know, and reading through um, about you and your practices, your background um, has a lot to do with Jungian uh, psychology, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's been it. Yeah. Well, I, I spent a long time initially beginning with Jungian dream analysis, followed by uh, another method that Jung developed, active imagination, which allows you to engage with uh, your own personal unconscious, um, combine that with transpersonal psychology, and really uh, both transpersonal psychology as well as depth psychology. Uh, per Jung are just foundational for how we work in this space. The the transpersonal psychology, because on high enough doses, um, around about 40% of our guests have a mystical experience. I can speak to that. Um, from, the de- from the depth psychology perspective, this is really about, if you like, working with the symbol and the metaphor of the unconscious mind that arises throughout these medicine experiences. So right. um, these are two foundations, but obviously we uh, we have a lot of therapists, licensed mental health professionals that work our retreats, and that's also involving uh, a lot of 
the more standardized uh, uh, traditional therapeutic modalities, including CBT, DBT, and uh, other methods as well. Internal family systems being one. Right. And then, you know, I think that's incredibly valuable that it looks at all of the different models and methodologies around mm. approaching mental health because there isn't one correct path to healing um, because the brain is so complicated. So the fact that you're actually working with many of the different channels is is um, excellent. Now, something you uh, mentioned earlier about the difference, you know, the shamanic approach and the ceremonies versus coming at it from the transpersonal. The person who engages in a program with you at a retreat, what can they expect that's different than, say, at somebody who's working from the perspective of one of the um, shamanic approaches? Okay. There are a number of differences. I mean, the first thing I'd say is that undoubtedly, if you took a canoe seven hours down the Amazon to a Maloka and you joined an indigenous peoples there and participated in their ceremonies, you would undoubtedly get some neurological benefits from the psychedelic uh, molecules used in that. Okay. Of course. And there are, there are two ways. So there are two aspects to any psychedelic experience in, in the classic psychedelics. One is the neurological impact. The second is the psychological content and how that's interpreted. And so, right. for example, um, ayahuasca, its its foundation is based upon the use of spiritual and occult forces. Right. Um, uh, an example might be uh, many of our guests report down here a voice that maybe speaks or guides them or takes them somewhere. In the shamanic interpretation, that could be a disembodied spirit. In the Western contemporary uh, perspective, it could be anything from a repressed aspect of the psyche to an autonomous complex um, and other repressed aspects of the psyche. So, how do you how do you put a framework around that? And, and my personal belief is, having worked and a lot of my original shamanic training, um, is that unless you are truly enculturated in that belief system that there's going to be a lot less efficacy for the average Western in the, in the realm of the psychological content. So when our guests come to others, um, you could say there are three levels of experience. They can have a very personal experience related to their lives, um, their childhood, childhood traumas. Um, they can transcend the personal experience into more of a metaphysical, philosophical experience, mm -hmm. and then even to a more cosmological experience as well. And so there are certain um, myths um, historically, that, that, that we understand in the West, that are a lot more, um, they're a lot more approachable when you're talking about these types of experiences versus maybe um, out of a shamanic interpretation. Also, uh, also I'd say that um, it's not common to have therapists working shamanic retreats either. Right. Sometimes there are language issues as well, and a lot gets lost in translation. Um, and at the moment, in the psychedelic industry, we don't really have a language for communicating about the psychedelic experience and the meaning of it to the public at large. You've got the shamanic language, which most people can't come to terms with and come to grips with. The other end of the spectrum, you've got very medical language, which means it's not that approachable. And right. so we are in the process of developing this language and building the plane as we fly it. No one's really done this before. Yeah, and you know... That aspect of it regarding the language and people's level of comfort, that, that's a huge barrier, which sometimes people don't think about ahead of time 
in that they're going to be immersed in a different cultural experience than they're used to. And that unfamiliarity sometimes creates a barrier, whether, you know, unwittingly, because people are excited to start a journey, but don't realize that they're going to have to overcome a barrier, which they hadn't really planned or expected subconsciously and consciously. But with your approach, because you're coming at it using the the common languages and culture, cultural background for Western society, you've removed that. Absolutely. And we're always in the process of, of removing it. Um, at, at the end of the day, we what we do is psilocybin-assisted therapy. And right. uh, there are three doses throughout the week. Every other day is a seven-day retreat. Each dose is followed the next day with what's called integration therapy. Mm-hmm. So what is integration? Um, there are levels of analysis here. One level of integration therapy is material comes up from the unconscious um, that was heretofore unavailable to you that may be cognitive insights about your childhood, your relationship to your parents, uh, this kind of thing. As this material arises for the first time into your conscious awareness, it's mm-hmm. understanding it, framing it, and integrating it into your conscious awareness and so that when you go back home, you can now make the relevant changes in behavior and perspective that you need based off what you've now learned about yourself that's new. Um, the next level up, if you like, is that we all have um, various personas. There is the persona I, I have as a brother, as a son, right. business person, as a retreat leader, as a friend. And the, there are, these are all marginally different. Right? How I may show up at work and how I present at work might be very different from how I present um, when I'm safe at home in, in my four walls surrounded by family and friends. Of course. And one of the purposes of integration is to develop, an, if you like, an integrative life so that there is as little light as possible shining between how you present to the world, how you are seen, and how you actually are. And what we're speaking to there is authenticity. Um, this is not something that you just arrive at your authentic self overnight. It's an ongoing process, but mm-hmm. um, allowing people to have the courage and the humility just to show up as they truly are and to be authentic um, is also part of the work and the integration as well. Yeah, because people being able to be their authentic self is a huge a huge yeah. issue because most people are restrained and restricted by societal norms and a fear of being cast out and the real and you know that's one reason why people are usually and hopefully themselves at home a lot of people can't even do that but um being able to bring those together is tremendous and really should be removing a f- removal of the fear is a huge value to anybody who goes to visit now just taking a step back, you, you mentioned something in there. It's a one-week retreat with three major sessions. And in between, what do people do? Okay. So they're all going to arrive Friday afternoon, a bit tired and worn out from their travels. And frankly, anywhere on a spectrum between mildly nervous and anxious and very scared. Okay. Um, and that also depending upon the myriad of health conditions they've got, anxiety, depression, etc. Um, our operations team meets them, checks them into their rooms, um, we will meet for dinner and that's where they get to meet our therapy team for the first time. We have dinner, we have all meals with our guests together. The next day we're going to meet as a group after breakfast um, and have our first pre-dose conversation but the purpose of that first conversation which takes a few hours is really to introduce the team members and then to go around the group and we're going to ask them a few questions. We're going to ask you, um, tell us a bit about your childhood, Tell us about your relationship to your parents, 
any major events that have happened to you in your life, trauma or otherwise, and then what your intentions are. And I can tell you, Richard, there's nary a dry eye in the room as people are talking about their life experiences and what their hopes are. Once that's done, we're going to have our first dose in the afternoon. Um, we always start with a low dose to begin with, and there's a reason for that. Um, the scientists now, or just in the last couple of years, are beginning to learn what we've known for a few years. There is no one size fits all when it comes to psilocybin. Everybody yes. has different tolerance and sensitivity, and it's not our goal to drop anybody in at the deep end and, and have them be overwhelmed. So it gives our guests with that first low dose, um, their first, often their first experience with psychedelics, and allows the team to assess their sensitivity and tolerance so we can dial it a lot more accurately, accurately for the second, third doses. Nevertheless, some will still have underwhelming experiences and some will have quite remarkable first experiences, even on a low dose. Right. Um, we will then, when everybody's come down from the session, we'll eat dinner together. The next morning uh, at 9 a.m., we begin the group integration. And the kind of questions we're going to ask, and we keep clinical notes throughout the week, we record all of this, is tell us what your dose was. Tell us what the onset of the dose was like. Was it uncomfortable? Was it peaceful? Was it quick? Was it slow? What was that initial onset, which takes us about 45 minutes, like for you? Um, what is What was your trip in a nutshell? If there's one sentence you could use to describe your trip, what's your trip in a nutshell? And then a few key details of that trip, and then any takeaways after you've slept the night and you've thought about it the following day. And so that sets up, that's the prime fertile ground, we're beginning to discuss what came up. And, you know, there are, there are three... Uh, if you like mediators, the psilocybin experience, one can be cognitive insights. Right. You may suddenly get a flashback to when you were six years old and dad yelled at you for something or mum shamed you about something. And that was the beginning of the end of that behavior because you repressed it, you internalized it. But nevertheless, uh, you still carried aspects of that behavior into your adult life with you. Um, right. So cognitive insights is just one piece. The second piece is emotional breakthroughs. Um, psilocybin is known as an ab reactive in psychoanalytical terms. And that simply means um, you it, it will bring to the surface that which has the most emotional charge within what we call repressed emotions. Okay, And then the third mediator is the mystical experience, uh, which I'm happy to talk about later. And so these are what we're discussing with our guests and we're helping them understand them giving them a framework and helping them with our therapeutic approach to integrate them. Um, once the integration is done by early afternoon, the rest of that afternoon is free. You can go to the beach, go to your room, read a book, socialize with other guests. Uh, we lay massages on and that kind of thing as well. And the following day is the next dose where we go up substantially normally, uh, followed by integration the next day in the afternoon free, followed by the third dose on Wednesday, uh, integration therapy. Thursday, and then everybody's heading home Friday. And and frankly, the, the vast majority of our guests had a transformational experience for their words. And you know, you mentioned earlier that you'll have you have psycho uh, psychologists on site, you have therapists on site. Mm -hmm. And when somebody opens these doors into their past and they confront, you know, the their deepest, darkest secrets sometimes. I mean, it doesn't always happen mm -hmm. on the first go, but event you do. When you get to that point, you need to talk. Um, how are you integrating with the therapist at that point? Do Are they just available for when anybody's ready? Or is it yeah. because 
normally it takes months to build a relationship with a therapist, but in this case, you're on an accelerated forum. How do, how do people bridge that gap? You're right. And that's some of the magic sauce that we have at Myco. Um, we don't have, you know, back home, they just call it the West. Generally, there's a power differential between the doctor, psychiatrist, therapist, and the patient, right? Right. Uh, that power differential exists. Um, secondly, there can often be a cool professional aloofness that comes with that bedside manner with some psychiatrists and doctors and therapists. Um, but we don't just talk the talk, we walk the walk. All of my team members um, will dose with mushrooms on a regular basis and do their own inner work, leading them to be more authentic individuals. And so uh, you're quite right. We don't have weeks or months to, to develop that trust and that confidence. And as it begins um, from day one, actually it, it begins before they even arrive and they're interacting with our team members and getting ready. Um, and so we prep them, you know, I, I, if I'm leading the retreat, I'll often say as it's coming to that first group talk, we don't just want you to talk to the point where you feel comfortable. We would like you to actively move into the discomfort as well. Um, and that helps us as a team, um, understand more what could come up for the guest. And also frankly, just in, in giving voice to the deepest, darkest secrets um, of their lives is the beginning of the healing process within them as well and sets it up well ready for the dose. So, but as you say, part of that is talk, but part of that is also listening. So you could see that the, to answer your question, the group therapy is very structured, but given that we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with all of our guests, these are also informal therapeutic interactions. And then separately, if a guest requires some one-on-one work with the therapist, or there's something they're just not comfortable putting out in the group, um, there's plenty of opportunity for one-on-one therapy with our therapists as well. Right. Because I mean, for, for many people, the, the trauma that occurred, especially as a child, because most of these issues do occur, you know, in the early childhood years, um, they, they are so devastating to your psyche and they are so terrifying when you finally do recognize what they are because you're, you're reconfronting the terror of the moment, which you've buried for years. It's hard to put that out in a group experience, in a group scenario. It's hard to speak about until you've really had the chance to um, walk through it, learn about it, but be able to frame it in a in a way where you've become you've recognized that it happened in the past. It's detached, even though it's still attached to you, but it's mm-hmm. not. You didn't do anything. It happened to you. And that takes a while for people to get to. So that's where I was curious how you right. handled that. Okay. So let, let me, let me speak to that specifically. Um, I would say at a minimum 40 to 50% of our guests have some experience, have had an experience of childhood sexual abuse, be it a one-off or be it ongoing. Um, in many cases, they will show up here with an inkling of knowledge that something happened because it was decades ago, mm-hmm. but in many cases, no knowledge that this even happens. I'll explain the reason why. So we may have, for example, a male or a female, 50 years old, high functioning, um, but has a poor relationship with alcohol and is cycling through patterns of certain types of romantic relationships. They're just not healthy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're down here with depression. Right. Um, what, what will happen is, is they will have their first dose and maybe it won't show up in the first dose, but given these ab- reactive properties, what will happen um, is that these memories of what happened will start to emerge from the unconscious mind. There's a reason for that. 
Um, there's within mental health, there's a concept of what's called disassociative amnesia. So mm -hmm. as a person is going through that trauma, a form of disassociation happens where they're not consciously aware and two things happen. The memories of that event get relegated to the unconscious mind where they are largely unavailable to the conscious mind. And secondly, the body will often hold on to the physiological and emotional response to that trauma. Okay. It gets repressed. Yes. So they turn up on retreat and typically by the second dose, memories are going to start coming back. But at the same time, um, the body's going to start releasing the physiological and emotional responses. It's not so much they have to relive their trauma, but they have to re-experience the body's first physiological and emotional response to that trauma. Now that's a sexual assault. We're talking things like feelings of powerlessness, disgust, shame, fear, feelings of contamination, um, especially if they didn't know this happened or amnesia had kicked in. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they're experiencing all of these feelings and they have to be processed and that's catharsis. Uh, right. and, as, and then as they're coming out of the trip, these, these can be challenging experiences to have, but once this material is out, it's out. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing that actually they're probably going to go through is some cognitive dissonance. How can I be 50 plus years old seemingly well put together but and my intellect has let me down so badly i had no idea this happened or it's done right. such a good job of storing and protecting this the next set of thoughts are well if this happened to me and it was either a close family member or a close family friend is that abuser still alive are they still in the family's circle of friends at, at various uh meetups right and does this person still have access to young children so these are all the myriad of types of stages that people go through. Um, the majority of our therapists are both trauma-informed and, and very used to experiencing, uh, sorry, with working with um, childhood sexual abuse. So they've got a lot of support when they're down here. Uh, when they leave retreat, um, we will often delegate a therapist to be their buddy for a couple of weeks as a support. And right. then we will help them find somebody in their area, a therapist, uh, that, that, that's experiencing working in childhood sexual abuse and they continue to integrate and work through that after they get home. And then what you ultimately end up seeing is when they've integrated this fully, they are no longer really cycling through patterns of um, abusive relationships, the desire to overconsume alcohol to numb the pain um, of their prior childhood experiences dissipates and it's it's the beginning of a, of a healing journey. You know, and a couple of things you said there are incredibly important. The first to me that struck me was, you know, when the when the patient leaves, when you know, you, when your visitor leaves, um, you help them find a therapist that's local to them that specializes in the issues they're dealing with, mm -hmm. um, because you don't want to just walk in and find a therapist who isn't really trained to handle these issues and all you know all therapists are are used to handling the issues but they're not all the right ones for you as a fit um, because if you were a you know 50 year old male as you explained and your abuser was an adult male you probably don't want to be seeing the somebody who resembles them in any way shape or form as part of your practice it's much a lot easier for you to open up to a woman uh, because unless the woman 
reflects the fact that your mother didn't protect you, in which case you need to find somebody who's very distinctly different. Um, yes. And that's very huge as part of a follow-on with people. And the other thing is, I think it has to be stressed for people who are questioning what's gone on with them, where they're you know, listening to this or and thinking about their own lives. Once you're able to uncover what happened, you're empowered because you now are actually able to understand what went on and there is no shame. It's no more, you know, it's no different than, you know, you were hit by a car as you were cycling your bike down the road. You're a victim. And, you know, I use the analogy for people uh, as I'm, because I do a lot of work with people and I'm doing a project around the mental health space. When you're a child and your arm gets broken, people put it in a cast and they sign the cast. And everybody teases you about, you know, being a klutz and they buy you ice cream and compensation. And, but if your arm was broken by a family member or a per trusted person as part of abuse, they still treat the arm exactly the same, but nobody knows what happened and how it happened. And the same thing with sexual abuse, except nobody sees it. So it's not even mm -hmm. like you get partially dealt with. And that's a huge burden for anybody to bear. But once you know and are able to accept it, you're stronger. Exactly. And, and just to your first point briefly, it makes complete logical sense that a male victim of sexual abuse would feel more comfortable than a female and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But we often never know what people have in their history. If they exactly. don't know them, we have a very detailed application form. So our teams comprise both male and female, and we are extremely selective. We will pick the safe, safe males. And so what will often arise as a female maybe is processing this type of trauma, if trust has been established with safe males, um, we would often get a male be beckoned over to please help work with this person. And what we're, what's happening there in, in, um, is, is, is with our guests are working with safe males and safe females, um, it's reconstructing their view of the world, which it always maybe the world is an unsafe, dangerous place, or males are unsafe, dangerous gemmas so that kind of um, reprocessing is is important as well. Uh, what we see with PTSD, for example, um, the underlying trauma happened, um, but it led to a lot of maladaptive behavior. And sure. I see a, a lot of PTSD that the, the underlying consensus is that the world is generally an unsafe and dangerous place. My home is my sanctuary, but slowly that home becomes a prison over time. Okay, and they're not venturing out into the world. And so what tends to happen is they have all sorts of strategies for evading and coping. And these are walls that are being built around them, that they're being built to protect them. But what's happening behind the walls is the person is getting weaker and weaker. And so what we have to do with them is, is, is help them disassemble all of these walls over time. And then slowly, we're not just about reducing the anxiety, which is part of what we do. But we're also helping to make people braver in the world. So they are actively willing to disassemble these wounds and begin to venture out into the world and test the world, right? And it's only by doing that they build resilience over time as well and move out of victimhood into this more empowered state as well. That's part of the ongoing process they need to do uh, when they leave here and go home. Yeah. And, you know, it's 
some of these people, you know, they don't recognize the behavior in themselves or others in terms of how they're reacting or what they're reacting or how they're behaving or the pain they're inflicting on the people around them because of their unresolved issues. And, you know, you, you know, before being CEO here, you had quite an extensive business background and we see a lot of managers and leaders, but a lot of managers in business who are, you know, have teams reporting to them who have these unresolved issues and they don't recognize that they're inflicting their unresolved issues on the people around them. And that creates stress in the workplace and it creates, it results in, you know, lower productivity on a business perspective, but it also results on the people taking those stresses home and having their lives in churn. When I always find that a retreat like this or, you know, any practices like this are actually not just are amazingly beneficial for anybody who's a manager or a business leader. If only, even if they don't necessarily know, recognize, or even have an issue at the end of the day, it's the mindfulness and the ability to approach and understand themselves and how they interact with others that opens up and changes and makes them better, more productive. Actually, for people who are looking at a career path, makes it opens the doors for you to go further as a stronger leader. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are there are, in, in psychology, there's what's known as five cardinal psychology traits, and it's abbreviated by the word ocean. Um, and O is openness. That's a spectrum. Yeah. Um, it's openness to new experience. So if you're towards the higher end of openness, that means that you, there's more creative thinking. Um, you're more able to deal with, with ambiguity and uncertainty, etc. And we know people that are very closed off and they're very rigid world that they're that's the openness scale. C is conscientiousness, subset of which is diligence and industriousness. Um, e is the extroversion through introversion scale. A is agreeableness through disagreeableness. And then N is neuroticism. And it's it's a really, really good idea for anybody to go online and Google the ocean test and take the test yourself. And it helps you begin, if you like, to map the architecture of your personality. It's not a complete definition, but for right. example, um, a good manager in a corporation should be at the middle of the spectrum of agreeableness. They shouldn't be highly disagreeable and tyrannical, and yep. at the other end, they shouldn't be so agreeable that they're a walkover. They need exactly. to be in the middle as a manager, which is a, if you like, a combination of compassion and accountability, right? Yep. Um, and so what's been shown with psychedelics, just on the openness scale, is that if you have a mystical experience, it can increase your openness to new experience by about one standard deviation at population at large. Now, to give you some context, if you went to a therapist to increase your openness, you're looking at about a ten-year, uh, a ten-year exercise of working on openness. We can achieve that down here with just one therapeutic dose. So wherever you land on these spectrums of personality uh, uh, facets, you're not stuck there. Um, agreeable people um, tend to, it's, it's a double-edged sword, highly agreeable people tend to be, have lots of friends, they're easy to get along with, but at the same time, um, they don't tend to advocate very well for themselves. And they end up being walkovers, and that can create all manner of ongoing issues. They tend to be conflict avoidant. And so, you know, a few of the things that we will say to our guests is, is here's a couple of things you can hit on your fridge door. 
if you find that you're an agreeable person. Conflict delayed is conflict multiplied, right? Mm -hmm. How many times have you brushed that problem under the rug and it's blown up in your face three months later? Way worse than had you addressed it right now. And then the other thing to realize about agreeableness is that often unexpressed desires are really premeditated um, resentments, right? Um, if you don't express your your desires and you advocate, whether it's in the workplace, with your romantic partner, that can, and it's internalized, that can lead to bitterness and resentment. Right. right. So yep. There's lots of reasons to, to map the architecture of the personality, to understand where we reside within that, then we can take active steps to come into the healthy middle grounds on most of these. Yeah, and it's that healthy middle ground is incredibly powerful for yourself and the people around you, because as a, a business leader, your first and most important role is to give everybody around you the tools they need to succeed to help them be successful. And by doing so, you become truly more successful and completely successful. And if you're not able to find that ground and be able to be in a position where you can put their needs in the appropriate place, you'll never get there. Exactly. And, and, and let's face it, there are some people that you know, it can be simply your parents were helicopter parents that were full of anxiety and modeled that behavior to you as you were growing up until it became internalized and normalized for you. And you are now a highly anxious person that has an irrational amount of or a disproportionate amount of risk applied to all sorts of things, right? Right. That's not good to bring that into the workplace. On the other hand, if your early childhood psychological development was interrupted by trauma, it's not uncommon. Um, for narcissism to develop as well. And what we're seeing now is that full narcissistic personality disorder used to be around about 2 to 4% of the population. Um, but we're seeing many strong traits of that coming through in a, in a much wider swathe of the population now and a lot more pre people presented with narcissistic traits. So what does that mean when a narcissist joins your organization and they're in a leadership position? Now, many narcissists will have, but there are two types of empathy. There's cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. And narcissists certainly have uh, cognitive empathy. It allows them to walk a mile in your shoes, to emotionally attune to you, but so that they can learn your vulnerabilities and weaknesses and exploit you because they have no emotional empathy. And there's very little in the way of remorse or regret. Once you allow people with NPD or with strong narcissistic traits or other personality disorder traits into an otherwise healthy organization, unless that individual is identified quickly and positive incentives put in place versus them able to hijack negative incentives, um, you're going to end up with a, with a bigger problem than, than you actually began with. I mean, I'll give you an example. If you're running a sales team, right, or you have some seniority in a sales team and you're a narcissist, the likelihood that you will stamp over the rest of your sales colleagues to get the win and to get the deal in the sale is rather high. Um, and if you're charismatic and persuasive to boot with the senior leadership, you're going to get away with it for a while. And the way so, around that then is, is to link the narcissist's compensation to the compensation of the rest of the team. That way, there's a positive incentive not to just trample over people. So there are checks and balances, but with the preponderance of narcissistic traits uh, happening more and more, it's really important that business leaders are open to that, along with... Um, sociopathic traits and psychopathic traits as well. So do you think narcissistic traits are happening more in that they're being recognized more? Or do you think there's been a societal change that is encouraging that behavior? 
I think both, and I think certainly um, social media and the internet in general, you know, when you or I were coming up and it was AOL, it, in, the internet was supposed to be this great democratizing. It was supposed to be access to truth so everybody could operate, and unfortunately exactly. it turned into something else. Yeah, now it's a fire hose and you can't tell one position from the next. And yeah, so a lot of this narcissism is also arising um, out of uh, social media and uh, a huge amount of inauthenticity as well, right? The narcissists that, that are prolific on social media only present their best things, not their worst things. Right, yeah, of course, always. Yeah. Um, Justin Smith, a fascinating uh, conversation. Um, really, really enjoyed it and love to have you on again. Um, at some point in the next couple of months to there's a number of topics love to dive in deeper but we are out of time for today but people who you know want to learn more want to mm -hmm. explore um themselves and you know address some of their challenges but also just discover how to be better um how can they reach you and how can they follow up and learn about participating through micro meditations Okay, so um, micromeditations.com is a great resource. There's lots of research, press, um, articles on there. If you type micromeditations and TripAdvisor into Google and go to TripAdvisor, yep. you've got around 255 star reviews. They're long testimonials. And many of our guests read every single one of them and identify their own life story in those testimonials and the reasons why people came. Um, let me just say that by the end of this year, we will have served 2,000 guests, around 6,000 doses of psilocybin. We are science, ev evidence, and research-based. We track a lot of data that helps us um, work on our protocols. We're, we're very big on the efficacy of our outcomes as well as safety. We have a very high ratio of team members to guests. And like I say, we are predominantly centered around mental health. Um, so we would welcome anybody to engage with us. There's quite a detailed application form our denial rate is about 30%. There are just certain people with certain mental health conditions for which psilocybin is not suitable. Um, so we focus very much on... Which is great for people to know. Yeah, very important. So I want to thank you for your time this morning, Richard, in the interview. And I'd certainly be happy to have another conversation in the future. All right. And no, thank you, Justin. And thanks for joining us on High on Healthy. And we'll be back with everybody again shortly. I'm Richard Zwicky. Signing off.